Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It could come off as being emasculating if you, we only talk about him as, you know, he did the shopping, he helped sweep up the house, which he did do that. He did go to the market and he did do the shopping. Uh, he did help clean up in the house. There's no doubt about it. Uh, he also went to Bether and Uhud and carried the sword. Never in human history has the role and position of men and women been subject to so much dispute. The advent of liberalism has ushered in an era of free thought and individualism that has removed previously accepted notions of roles and obligations. Liberal feminism has explicitly sought to forward a hollow version of equality that has, on the whole, harmed women and men. And sadly, the backlash to modernity has been a crude assertion of masculinity that loathes women and removes any of their rights. Social media is awash with a morass of failed gender relations and gender conflicts to which many young Muslims, however well-intentioned, contribute. Imam Dawood Walid has recently published a serious contribution to the subject of manhood. He argues that the rich classical scholarly works detailing how to bring up young men has been lost. This sacred idea of chivalry may look out of place in modernity, but it produced well-balanced young men that combined courage with humility, strength with forgiveness and public duty with prayer. Imam Dawood Walid believes Islamic masculinity is not naturally acquired, but has to come from revelation and reinforced by models of manhood within families and communities. He has recently authored a brilliant book titled Futawa and Raising Males into Sacred Manhood, a timely contribution to the topic. 
I have included a copy of the contents page on our Thinking Muslim Telegram group. A link in the show notes can be found below this podcast. Imam Dawood Warid, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome back to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum salam, it's my pleasure to be back on here with you. And it's, it's great to have you with us. Uh, now, Imam Dawood, uh, before we get into the details of your book, I want to explore why there is a need to write a serious book. And this is a serious book on what you call spiritual manhood. Uh, is, is what we have in classical Islam, in Islamic instruction, not enough to define what it means to be a good man in Islam? So in regards to the serious nature of this book, uh, Fatua and Raising Males in a Sacred Manhood, um, it is predominantly centering uh, the Islamic narrative. And within this, there is a history or continuum of how manhood has been transmitted in Islamic civilization, but how it may be uh, demonstrates itself slightly differently depending on the space and time uh, in which uh, Muslims live. But uh, definitely, without a doubt, we look back at the example of humanity as Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, as Allah Azza wa Jal said in the Quran, like, قَدْ كَنَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْرَةٌ حَسَنَةٌ لِمَنْ كَنَ يَرْجُ اللَّهُ يَوْمُ الْأَخِيرِ That most certainly you have been given a beautiful praiseworthy model the messenger of God. And this is for whoever hopes in God in the last day and whoever makes remembrance of God often, right? So this is our model. Uh, but more specifically, the model for humanity, the model for humankind was placed in the body of a man, right? So there are certain aspects of what we would call rujula or we would say sacred manhood that yes, uh, can be exhibited uh, by both genders, but there are certain things very specific about the life of the Prophet وسلم, that its kamal or its perfection is within the male that grows up to be a man. For instance, uh, no matter how, how much a woman uh, wants to emulate certain roles, a woman will never know how it is to be a husband, right? She cannot be a husband, right? She cannot be a father, right? Even if she tries to play the role of father, she cannot be a father, right? So the perfection of this manhood in to its fullest sense uh, is in the, uh, the the human form, the male form of the Prophet Sallallahu Ta'ala Alaihi Wa Alaihi Wa Sahbihi Wa Sallam. In regards to the uh the, the 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 backdrop in saying that uh and you mentioned islam is enough yes i do believe that islam is sufficient in that islam is as allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that surely the way of life with god is el islam right definitely but we've always had a tradition and this also relates to to futua uh sacred chivalry and wujula sacred manhood in which this topic, like other topics, have been elucidated upon by teachers, uh, as well as scholars that have written about this topic uh, and have sought to embody this topic. So really what I have embarked on 
is really elucidating virtues that are written in our classical books on uh, sacred manhood, on uh, Islamic chivalry. And then the, uh, the foreword by Molana Asim Ayyub, who's actually British, uh, who's in High Wycombe. And then the introduction that I wrote are talking about some of the contemporary uh, social issues as well as political issues that we believe have negatively affected uh, manhood as we see it in the 21st century. And in particular, as we see the demonstration of Muslim manhood um, in Britain, Canada, and the United States of America in particular. It's interesting that, that you say that, that your book is an elucidation of uh, Islamic uh, scholarship through the centuries and, and what they have to say about sacred manhood. Um, I mean, I, I you know, grew up with, in a traditional Islamic household and I attended madrasa from an early age and uh, we studied Quran and Hadith and we studied the various disciplines of Islam. But the discussion about the specific ahkam related to sacred manhood, to Islamic chivalry, was never discussed. And I grew up thinking that maybe in Islamic history, there's never really been a discussion about that because it's just taken. It's a, it's a given that men will be men. Uh, it's almost a biological fact that men will acquire certain traits or have certain traits uh, that women do not have. And why is there a need to have uh, a, 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 a deep discussion about it? Like there is a need to have a discussion about salah or fasting or other disciplines because these are uh, these are not natural fitri ideas. These need to be how to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala needs to be taught to us. Uh, have I misunderstood something quite profound in uh, Islamic scholarship? Well, I wouldn't say that you've misunderstood. I would say perhaps that there is uh, certain things that perhaps were not introduced to you at a, at a younger age and that the manhood that you saw was an embodiment, but perhaps the discourse wasn't framed that way. So it's not to say that what you got was deficient. It is to say that perhaps it was just discussed in a particular way without clearly labeling it as such. And that perhaps you saw the embodiment of this manhood, right? But from the issue of the disciplines, we're talking about Rujula, Futua, Murua, we have these terms that there, we can say literally that there are uh, different aspects to this that need to be discussed, and our scholars have discussed uh, metaphysically and physically. And we know that the Prophet Muhammad alayhi salam, said in a well-authenticated hadith, that for everything that's created, there is a deeper truth, there's a deeper reality. So we as Muslims who believe in spirituality and also who believe in the unseen, like we believe that there are uh, that behind all physical manifestations are metaphysical realities, right? So there is something that is not just something physical, but uh, metaphysical. And hence, this is pointed to in the Quran that uh, masculinity and malehood is a divine construct. It's not a man-made construct. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Right, uh, oh humankind, we created you from a male, and we may create you a male and female, right? So it is Allah who's the one who constructed this. 
uh, it's not just people who constructed this. And uh, in our ahkam and in the Sharia, there are specific there is specific balance in which females are given certain um, virtues and certain um, we can say exceptions and certain responsibilities that simply males don't have, and vice versa. Uh, there are certain virtues that men are given. Uh, over women, and with that comes certain responsibilities. So it is the inward self that is complementing the outward self in these societal roles. Doesn't mean that one is intrinsically better than the other, but they're different, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and this is in relationship to the to the birth of, of Sayyidatina Maryam alayhi salam, the male is not like the female. And this is not just outwardly, this is something that's inward as well. So we understand this from a metaphysical perspective. And there's also these uh, rulings that relate to the Sharia, the sacred law, and there are social roles that are attached to this. Um, right, that uh, males are the guardians and protectors of women. And then in the same ayah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says of women, and women are the protectors of the guardians of that which is not apparent. So there are even like different societal roles. Um, and, and, and men have um, certain uh, responsibilities under sacred manhood that simply women do not have those same uh, frontline uh, responsibilities. And there are many historical examples about, about this, not just in the time of the Sahaba, but we go on to the other generations of how this was always understood uh, within uh, Muslim communities and Muslim societies. And, and perhaps things have gotten a little confused now, but with uh, social liberalism and now postmodernism, where uh, traditional gender roles are being uh, deconstructed to the point that even people, some people say that gender and not only a man-made construct, some people would even say gender doesn't even exist. Right in postmodernism, but no, this is this is clear in our tradition of the the Quran, the the ahadith. Uh, our our scholars of spirituality, as well as our scholars of fiqh, uh, talked about these differentiations and uh, men not imitating women, women not imitating men. Uh, this is something that's very rich in the uh, in in our Islamic discourse. What comes through from from the discussion, from your response, as well as looking at your book. Um, your argument is that manhood is not naturally acquired. It's taught. We need to access the revelation in, in understanding what it means to be a man and not just leave it up to our base instincts. But I wonder whether, I mean, I'm just looking back at the books of Sirah, and again, I'm not well-read as, as you are, Imam, and, and you know, I've, I've read some books of Sirah, and, and uh when, for example, Omar ibn al-Khattab or Abu Bakr or Ali, when they became Muslim, especially those like Omar and Abu Bakr who became Muslim eh, when they were uh, beyond their teenage years, did the Prophet والسلام, uh, teach them uh, or reassess their understanding of masculinity? and teach them a, a newer version or an Islamic version of masculinity? Like, was that part of the prophetic program? Yeah, most definitely that the Prophet Sallallahu uh, introduced to them uh, some new aspects of what it meant to be a real man. At the same time, he affirmed certain traits and qualities that were positive. So 
in uh, Jahili society of the Arabs, and also Jahiliya, as it's known as the Day of Ignorance or the Arab Ignorance, Arabs did have a concept of manhood and chivalry, right? And all of it uh, was not uh, Islamically non-compliant. So, for instance, uh, Quraysh took uh, karma, took pride, for instance, in hosting people, of honoring guests, of being generous, right? These are qualities and traits of of of, of sacred manhood, right? Um, uh, now, some of these things had to be tempered. So uh, we know uh, very famously that uh, some of the companions, for instance, prior to Islam, uh, buried the female babies alive. And we mentioned Abu Bakr and Omar, and one of them actually had done this, right? Um, so the, the centering the value of the wife of the woman, and that in this kawamun means hafidun, of being the guardian, guardians and protectors of women, that the life of the female is to be not only preserved, but that one should be willing to give their life to protect their women folk. This is something that had to be recalibrated, right? Even to the point of the infant child who was the most vulnerable, which is the female. Uh, for instance, we know that Omar bin Khattab, uh, was known to be uh, a very um, strong man, very strong man, a lot of himma, right? Sometimes this turned into being overly stern. So uh, on several occasions we have in Sirah, in books of Ahadith, the Prophet Sallallahu had to inform him and tell him that this strength that he was exhibiting, that if it was displayed in an overly vigorous way, it would become blameworthy. Thus, it was not what true manliness constitutes to the extent that uh, Omar ibn Khattab, uh, uh, that when he came into uh, being uh, Khalifa, and actually he's the first one to, to carry the title Amir al-Mu'minin, the, the commander of the faithful, he said, Allahumma inni shadid falayani. Oh Allah, surely I'm too stern, I'm too tough. So soften me up a bit, make me a little more gentle, right? Because uh, the goal of sacred manhood is the wasat, right? It's the heart of the mouth, the middle, al wasatiyah. So this is what the Prophet taught through speech and through example to the Shaykhain, like Abu Bakr and Omar, may Allah be pleased with them both, right? That anything too far to the right or anything too far to the left, that both of these go outside of sacred manhood or what it means to be a man in Islam. So, you know, being overly soft and effeminate and not taking responsibility, that's not really being a man, right? At the same time, being a brute, being mutashaddit, being overly harsh, uh, and, and including with the, the, with the children, right? And the girls or the women folk, that's not really being masculine either, uh, a true sacred manhood. And perhaps we can get to that later on because I have some strong feelings about uh, the red pill movement as a response to radical feminism, because I don't view uh, uh, some of what red pill is talking about as being uh, Islamically compliant under what we call Arrajula al-Islamiyah, right? The Islamic sacred manhood, I think that some of it kind of like goes uh, outside the bounds and 
you know, uh, uh, Andrew Tate is not not our sheikh, right? Or any of these other red pill personalities. They're they're not our shiuch. Well, exactly. So I, I wanted to raise the context uh, within which you write this book. I mean, I think it's it's a very much it's a it's a book that's much needed uh, today for for many young Muslims um, and young Muslim men, and even young Muslim uh, females need to appreciate and understand the role Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to men uh, so that they can appreciate their role in the role of men in society. But we can't, it would be remiss of me not to uh, talk about um, people like Jordan Peterson and as you said, Andrew Tate, who who talk about a crisis in masculinity. And I suppose in in a sense, uh, your understanding of the problem would be not too dissimilar to them. They see men have been emasculated. Uh, feminism, liberal feminism, has created a an aura, an atmosphere where men cannot be men anymore. And and Jordan Peterson is is you know uh, his prescription is is for men to return back to I suppose some base instincts you know where they do use their muscle and where they do show uh, their strength when it comes to societal relations. Is there a problem with um, with their prescription? Can we pinpoint what is wrong with, I suppose, the broader red pill movement when it comes to defining the man? Well, what I would say, number one, and this is, it's so on the one hand, we believe in the statement of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam right? That wisdom is the lost property of the believer. So it's not to say that some of the things that they said, especially the former, may uh, are perhaps could be accurate um, uh, in terms of its analysis. So I, I agree with some of it myself, right? I think it's the first basis of starting out is the epistemology that's different. Like what actually constitutes truth, right? What are the actual definitions? So perhaps these individuals' definition of what manhood is is different from the Islamic definition and paradigm of what manhood is. So most of their discourse relates to what we would say is al-maddiya. It is a materialistic understanding of manhood that is physical that then takes us out in certain societal roles, right? So we ourselves would say that manhood in and of itself starts with certain intrinsic qualities and virtues that come itself, that, that, that manifests, right? And this would start off number one with uh, proper sincerity and belief in our creator who's above, and we don't ascribe a location in Meccan to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but who is sublime and who is over us and who is our authority, right? And then our, inward states and our social dispositions and actions are based upon this belief. This is one uh, thing that's different. In the issue of like, you know, what they say about reasserting certain, what they would say, manly instincts, such as uh, being physically fit, uh, to be able to defend oneself. We would say that's true, but, but we would also say that's not the measure. And the prophet himself, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, that the man or the real man is not the one who's strong in wrestling or, or the, the, the strong, right? The one who is Kawi, he's not the one that's strong in wrestling. It's the one who is strong and able to control their anger. So this is talking about an inward discipline 
that is based upon a type of of spiritual embodiment, right, that we're talking about that would talk about manhood. Some of these people in Red Pill Movement, they also have this false sense of machismo. And like you mentioned, Andrew Tate, he drops the F-bomb and curses all the time, right? And this is a way of showing supposedly being macho or being tough. Well, this is not our uh, example. This is not manly. In fact, this is actually sinful, right? And to use this language uh, pertaining to women or to intimidate women, we would in fact say that not only is this sinful, but it is unmanly. Like uh, it should never be the position of a man. If a man is to be the protector of women, to try it in to intimidate women, to put them in their so-called place uh, through language or even uh, a type of like uh, intimidating uh, bodily postures, right? This is just one example. Besides also some of them uh, talking about Zina. So they say that a, a woman loses her worth when she has sex, but then a guy can go and have sex with whoever he wants or like this whole thing about conquering uh, women. There's a number of these things that are, like are not Islamically compliant. They're really based in viewing the man or manhood as a type of like superior animal species over women. So it's, it's debasing uh, the maqam of, of, of the rajul or, or, or rajul hakiki, the real man. They're, they're misdefining it and bringing down the status of what a real man is supposed to be according to Prophet Muhammad being the, the model of what we should strive for in attaining manhood. Imam Dawood, I've come across a number of young men who are influenced by Andrew Tate or Jordan Peterson, and they have a deep suspicion towards imams who emphasize in this from the sunnah aspects of the prophetic tradition which accord with modern sensitivities. So, for example, we hear on many occasions that the Prophet ﷺ used to help out in the home, and, and that certainly was the case. Uh, but but the, the emphasis is such that uh, the suspicion is that uh, modern imams are trying to emasculate young men and make them, uh, you know, touchy and feely, make them feel like or look like uh, men in wider society who aren't regarded as uh, uh, as those who have a particular role in society, but who are treated as equals in inverted commas, uh, to uh, as as women and are uh, and uh, do not have uh, those types of virtues that uh, we see in people like Omar ibn Khattab, radiallahu anhu. Uh, how um, how do you uh, yeah how do you address uh, that potential criticism? Well, you know perhaps some of that criticism is valid if those imams are not giving a balanced, full picture of the Prophet So there may be some imams that only talk about what we would say are the Jamali characteristics of Al-Habib al-Mustafa but don't talk about the Jalali characteristics. So this, in fact, we have to present uh, the Prophet in a, in, in a balanced way and discuss his seerah in the light of circumstances. So uh, it could come off as being emasculating if you, we only talk about him as, you know, he did the shopping, 
he helped sweep up um, the house, which he did do that. He did go to the market and he did do the shopping. Uh, he did help clean up in the house. There's no doubt about it. Uh, he also went to Bether and Uhud and carried the sword, right? He also, when Umar bin Khattab came into the home uh, 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 of, of Arkham, when he came into the home and, and, and Omar came to the door, uh, the prophet body slammed Omar. Like, what business do you have here, Omar? Right? <laughs> and then that's the day that Omar accepted uh, Islam. Uh, they, he and the Sahaba wrestled. As a matter of fact, uh, Usted uh, Nasar Sheikh, who's in the UK, wrote a book uh, translating the Hadith, the Esayuti, um, compiled on prophetic grappling. Like the Prophet wrestled, right? He did these things that are very, you know, masculine. So um, the Prophet had more than one wife, and he took care of it. He took care of those of those wives. So if 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 the imams of the du'at are only talking about you know issues of spiritual beauty but not of 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 these more what we could say um eminent um uh, majestic traits your beauty and majesty right then I, I could see how some of these young people may come to that um to that conclusion and i have my you know i i i i tried to walk walk this balance but i think that some of our our shiuk have been overly apologetic right and uh when they see people being overly apologetic about certain things that are cons have been considered to be scandalous that have not been illegal nor haram or being overly um apologetic to the left or to liberals then this does make young people uh, uh, rightfully suspicious of some of our uh, 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 of our imams, or if they see certain imams and scholars, um, you know, who could just talk about Tezkia, but then they won't criticize tyrants or dictators. May they may even praise a dictator country, right? Uh, this 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 this. So there are some legitimate grievances that then don't express themselves in legitimate means amongst some of our youth. So I tend to think that our youth and our young men are sincere. And part of this, just like my book Towards Sacred Activism, I've, I wrote this book believing that many of the activists I believe went too far to the left were sincere. This may be sincerely wrong and they need some help. And likewise, I think some of our brothers maybe have gone a little too far to the right and they're sincere. And you know, we have to be part of solution and calling people back to wasatiyah uh, of, of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. And this uh, effort is an attempt to try to, to call the young brothers back towards the wasatiyah, towards the, the middle ground of the prophetic sunnah. Now let's get into the details. Uh, you use the term futuwa and you present it, I suppose, as an overriding idea of Islamic masculinity. Can you explain to my listeners precisely what the term means and how it applies to the lives of young men? Okay, so Elufatua uh, is loosely translated as sacred chivalry. And it is a code of conduct that is based upon sacred virtues. And as I mentioned before, the term Fatua is something in the concept 
existed prior to the revealing of the Quran. The term fatua was a term that was used by the righteous Salaf, and we normally talk about these people as being the first three generations of Muslims. This term was actually used. The word fatah is a singular person who is striving to exhibit al-fatua. And al-fityan is a group of the males who are growing into their fatua. So this term, the fatah, puts us in the mindset of someone who is coming out of adolescence into a greater stage of responsibility in which they then are recognized <clears throat> within the society <clears throat> of not just being a boy, right? And this fatah normally comes into the age of one that is around 14 or 15, 15 uh, around 14 or 15 years old, when they become mukallif uh, <clears throat> or responsible according to the sacred law. And 15 is a, a very important age. And we look at the uh, Abdullah ibn Umar, uh, he was given permission to go out on Ghazwa at the age of 15 years old by the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We know that Zayd ibn Haritha, who's a teenager, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam arranged his marriage to Fatima bin Qais as a teenager and then appointed him to be his last commander as a teenager, right? But these young males went through a certain type of tarbiyah and they had a certain type of knowledge. And this was like their rites of passage to coming through to be recognized as a man within the society, right? So in this broad framework uh, of, of El Fatua, there are certain darajat um, we can use or levels, right? In, in the raising up, starting with certain virtues that slowly over time, that the young male is raised up more and more and more in which there is uh, a lifelong journey to try to culminate uh, this and its peak, which we would say is um, altruism, because altruism is part of the fatua, right? It is to prefer others over oneself, right? Uh, but this doesn't start off at the very young age, there's a type of upbringing that has to be undergone for the for the the young man to become uh, or the young male to be recognized as a man, and this is a process of spiritual maturation along with physical maturation. So, could you imagine in in the past, um, young Muslim men uh, would go through as part of their program of tarbiyah? many of these qualities that you uh, elucidate in your book, these will be taught to young men in an age appropriate way when they get to the stage where a, the acquisition of these uh, qualities become relevant to them. Would there have been a program where young, a finishing school for young men, uh, where they would uh, develop these qualities as part of that process of maturity? Yes, yeah, so, <clears throat> Al-Fatuwa as an institution was really organized during the time of the Abbasiyin. And under one of its uh, Salatin, he's named, he's known as Anasal al-Dinillah, right? And this is one of the beautiful things that he did. 
and I'm not overly praising him, like a lot of these sultans were a mixed bag. I mean, this same sultan put Ibn al-Jawzi, rahmullah ta'ala, he put him in jail. And a number of these Abbasids, I mean, Ahmed, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal was put in jail by a, an, an Abbasid. I mean, you know, um, uh, actually more than one Abbasid put Imam Ahmed in, in, in prison. Um, but one of the things that he did right before the Muslims were then able to, to recapture Al-Quds is he established the Fatua guilds. And we can say basically there's five principles of this Fatua that became systematized. Now, <clears throat> of course, the upbringing starts in the home. In the first place that the young male is supposed to, uh, for the tarbiya, the first place is supposed to be in the home. And the first thing that is learned through embodiment, but also words, is adab. Adab comes before ilm, right? So even the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he was taught his adab directly by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But even within this, we know that he was yatim, he was an orphan. But he still had positive male role models in his life. His father died before he was born, and then Abdul Muttalib helped to take care of him. Abdul Muttalib passed away. Then he was in the home of Abu Talib, right? So he had people who were known to have some virtue who were male role models, you know, uh, even though they weren't on Islam, that showed them some, some things of what we would call karam, like this thing about honor, a code of honor, uh, uh, generosity, because fatua in, in effect is like a type of, of a code of honor, kind of like how the, the Knights of the Round Table and these things, they copied these things from Muslims, right? As far as this, this, uh, this uh, order and the chivalry. So, one is the tarbiyah and this teaches adab. The second is elm, right? So we have at the ages of when a boy is little and get and then like to the age of seven on the history calendar, you can't really teach them anything deep about aqidah or anything like that. They're not going to understand, you know, too much about that, like, you know, um, uh, the technicalities of nubuwa and, you know, or the qadr of the khayr uh, nashar. They can't intellectually understand that, but they can learn adab at this age, even though they, they run around more free. After that age of seven years old, you then begin to introduce them to something that is more uh, intellectual because their, their cognition, they're more cogent to be able to understand things intellectually at this age, right? Um, then the third piece of it is, is this issue of al-khidmah, service, or al-khidmatu lil-jaliyah, it's, it's, it's community service, right? So one is supposed to serve their, um, their uh, parents, one is supposed to serve their teachers as well. And this is an organized thing, which, okay, the education comes from outside the household and it is solidified. And it is what we could say it's built upon with organized teaching and when there's spiritual mentors, spiritual guides, teachers, right, in an organized way. <clears throat> and uh, this community service is, is very important uh, because there's adab and service, but also for the fatah or for the young man to not just be self-centered or selfish, 
but to look past himself to do something for his community and for humankind, right? And we have the saying, the famous saying, Sayyidul Qawmi Khadimuhum, that a Sayyid or a leader of the people is their servant, servant leadership. The fourth aspect is the physical aspect because young men need to be strong, but they also need to learn discipline and the strength. So hence the prophetic grappling and the martial arts, the archery, right? Equestrianism. These are, I don't like using the term sunnah sports, but these are the things the Prophet encouraged the Sahaba to teach their boys, right? So in this, there's a way of getting out physical activity, strengthening the human or strengthening their bodies, but also teaching discipline and, and also precision. It takes precision and discipline for archery, to learn martial arts, to be able to handle a horse properly. There are many lessons that can be learned from this. <clears throat> then the fifth thing that Anasir al-Din systematized was the artisan guilds within the Fatua so that the young men learn how to do something with their hands. And this has two practical aspects. One, they learn a trade or skill to benefit the Ummah because at, the, at this time, the Ummah, they were fighting the Crusaders. And then, you know, Salahuddin al-Yubi was around the same time too, right? Someone has to know how to make the horseshoes for the horses. Someone has to know about the uh, how to make the swords. There's different things that need to, people need to eat you know, someone needs to know how to, how to do these things, right? Um, so these, these artisan guilds were created to help the ummah, but also to give these young men a skilled trade so they could be able to have a job to be able to take on a wife, to take care of themselves and to be able to take on a wife. You need to be able to know how to do something, right? So they were literate at the same time that they knew they had what was called industrial education. Because these fitian were taught how to read, taught how to write. They were, they were being taught in the sacred sciences and how to do math and things like this. But they also were taught to do something with their hands. So these are the, the five aspects uh, that Anasa Dinallah, uh, may Allah forgive him of his sins, uh, instituted during his, uh, during his government. And so really this is, type, this is a type of roadmap that then the Seljuks, they implemented this, carried this on. We saw this in Resurrection Earthworld. We see that taste of this, right? I have the Earthworld Ghazi hat on the cover of my Fatuk book. We, then the, the Ottomans used this, you know, and the Janissaries and all these different, you know, so the, the Fatua, the Fatua was done you know, by the Salatin, by the rulers, you know, but the, it was something that was more organic during the time of the Prophet and then it became systematized after the Salaf in the, in the time of the Khalaf, where they began to, around the era of Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani and uh, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, uh, Ibn al-Jawzi, in their lifetime, then we get to see the systematizing. And then, you know, in, in Madaraj Salikin, uh, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah, he has a chapter about Fatua in this book. You know, it was, it was written about, but also it was systematized. So let's go into the details. Let's talk about some of these qualities in, in a little bit more depth. Um, uh, let me pick one particular chapter. You've got, as your fourth chapter, you talk about vigilant care. 
What does that mean, and how is that important for a young man? Okay, so vigilant care. Uh, sometimes it's called protective jealousy. I use term vigilant care because normally jealousy in the English language has 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 a has a negative connotation attached to it. So I uh, translate the word gera, or some people pronounce it gera, as vigilant care. So this is what we're talking about. Uh, number one, the proper gera, like all of these virtues, is something that needs to be seen by our young males. In other words just teaching something from a book didactically without having a role model to actually live and exhibit it properly is, is will be wanting. There'll be something deficient about this. So much of the fatua that we're talking about in the training relates to uh, teachers and guides who are walking the young males through certain steps, but they are exhibiting this and then they're pointing directly towards certain things that are done as this is what this is. And they're teaching it from the Quran and from the Sunnah. So we, we talk about this issue of, uh, of the wasat, right? Again, and uh, I reference this term that's used. Well, first of all, the Quran uses this term in the sense that thus we have made you the middle ground of community. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and that we would be uh, shuhada or witnesses over the people. And the and the messenger is a witness over us, so he is the model, right, of this of this wasatiya. Uh, and then we have the hadith that the best of the matters are in the wasat; they're in the middle, right. Um, so when we look at this issue of of ghera, as other virtues like etusi uh, um, or uh, or Imam Ghazali talks about mizan al-amal in his book on Islamic ethics that anything too far to the right or too far to the left, again, is not virtuous. So we look at ghera as a virtuous trait that the Prophet wasallam said was a good virtue, and that some of the scholars of Fatua, like Ibn Ibn al-Hambali, rahimullah ta'ala, said that a one a person is not a real man who doesn't have ghera, right? So this protective jealousy starts with having ghera for Islam, Right, having ghera for the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Right, and, but how this is displayed is very important. So I'll give you an example with this before we go into the women folk. So, for instance, uh, something that's too far to the left, and would, in my view, this is my view. This is my, like this. This is dhani, based upon what I understand. They say, oh, we live in the West. We live in a free society. We believe in freedom of speech. So then I'm going to say, I protect this man's freedom of speech to, to burn the Quran and, and insult the Prophet. That's not ghera. Like we don't believe in absolute free speech. If someone insults Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's book, who insults our Prophet, we should be willing to defend the honor in the best way. In, in, in a way that has the best adab and also conforms to that which uh, adheres to the custom of our society, right? That's something that's, something that's not like felonious is my point that I'm getting to, right? At the same time, in having this ghera for the Quran and Islam, they say, oh, well, I have, they insulted my deen. So then therefore, 
I'm going to go even beyond what the Prophet وسلم, did when people insulted him, and then something like Charlie Hebdo happens. These are extremes. Neither one of these is proper ghira, right? So I was wanting to give like some like like a contemporary example. There's also ghira for the women folk, right? So protecting this, and we talked about this issue of kawama, a kawamun, right? So someone who doesn't have ghira, and the hadith talks about it, this guy is called de youth. There's actually someone who's accursed. He's ma'un. A de youth is one who is emasculated, who has no vigilant care for his woman to the point that he doesn't even care if his woman consorts with other men. You know, another man can come and disrespect his woman, looks her up and down, says anything, and he can't even defend the honor of his own woman. This is a day youth. This is this is a uh, this is um, uh, this is a punk. <laughs> I just use the word. It's a punk. Uh, then you have on the other side, in the name of Hera, a man who wants to treat his woman like his property or like a slave that in the name of so-called trying to protect her, won't even let her go to even visit her own family or her own parents. That would stop her from even going to Majalisul uh, Ilm to get knowledge or to go for Majalisul Dhikr, to go to gatherings of remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to go to the masjid because his vigilant care is going to the point that he is violating the Islamic rights of his wife, right? That's not a ghira either. That's someone who's being a brute. So the extreme to the left is the deyuth. This is the punk. The extreme to the right is a guy who's acting like Fir'aun in the name of ghira. Chapter five, you talk about humility. What is humility for a Muslim man and how, how important is it in developing a, a concept of Islamic masculinity? So tawadur is a praiseworthy trait. It is um, a prophetic trait. You know that the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was the most humble of people. He told the Sahaba that none of you should say that I'm better than Yunus ibn Matah, even though he was the Imam of all prophets and messengers. He had a higher rank than all of them. He excelled all of them on the night journey and leading them in Salah. He knew his rank, yet he said, he said, none of you should say I'm better than Yunus. This is of his humility, right? The maqabil are the opposite of hu why humility is so important because the maqabil of the opposite is actually a, a, a attribute of Iblis, right? Because Iblis, the, the, the opposite of humility is arrogance. And it's kibr, which is inside the heart. And then it is what is called tekebr or istikbar, when it displays itself outwardly, right? So if we look at humility as being, as being a virtue, it is the polar opposite of a satanic trait. So a man cannot be spiritually healthy if he doesn't have some sort of humility. And this humility, of course, uh, starts with humility in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Then this humility is also with one's first authorities 
in their lives, which is their parents. It's having humility with their teachers. And there are ways, and we write about this in the book, but there are, there are ways and spiritual remedies or arrogance or proactive ways in cultivating humility. And El Khidma that, that we mentioned earlier, or the service to others, is a way of, of inculcating this humility. So for instance, that one doesn't think that they're better than other people. Instead of thinking that those people should serve them, then you should go and serve those people, right? But not in a patronizing way or thinking that they owe you anything, right? And, and this is one of the things that we're taught, even in regards to the issue of, of uh, racism, right? Because, because the, the first spiritual uh, disease undergirding racism is kibber, is arrogance. So you go to the people, you think you're better than them, you go to where they're at and you sit on their level and you actually serve them. And, and this helps reversing the statement of Iblis when Iblis said, when he said, I am better than him speaking of Adam, then this reverses it that inside one, they should say, that he or he or she, even though they don't have uh, maybe the wealth that I come from, even if they didn't study in this madrasa, uh, even if they have from a different culture, most likely, because we can't see, we should have husnodan an opinion that, that this person has something that's better than, than me inside because I know my sin. And this is the way that we express it and try to teach our young people, to teach them humility. And this is really what we, this is what we, um, this is a very important trait that we need in this time and especially when we have people who like to brag and boast on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, everyone wants to brag and boast about what they have and how great they are. No, that's that's not really uh, that's not really in the wasl. That's not part of the of the of the rujula of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. In chapter twelve, you talk about courage and the need for young men to acquire courage. In today's modern world, where uh, many young men are, are taught to not be courageous, uh, to, to rely on the state, to rely on the law, uh, not to intervene when they see uh, problems and challenges, but to, to, you know, to, to live their own individualistic lives. I can see how courage is a really important trait for young men to acquire. What is courage in, in, in Islamic terms? And again, uh, using your uh, middle path uh, concept or idea, uh, where can courage sometimes lead to uh, disaster? Okay, so we know in, in Jabir ibn Abdullah said that, that the most courageous of men was the Prophet wasallam. So again, he's the baseline of the Khulafa and uh, Sheikh, with a great West African scholar, uh, Sheikh uh, Omar uh, El-Futi Tal, Rahimullah Ta'ala, a great Maliki scholar of West Africa, he said that this was a khasla of, of Ali ibn Abi Talib, may Allah be well pleased with him, that he inherited this khasla, this virtue from the Prophet, sallallahu So Imam Ghazali talks about this issue of a shaja'a, or courage, that it is the wasit, or it is 
the virtue and in extreme to the left is cowardice or el jubin in Arabic. And this is a spiritual disease of the Prophet Sallallahu an authentic hadith, he prayed from refuge from el jubin from, from cowardice. To the right, the extreme is recklessness. So being reckless, being almost so fatalistic, that's not courage. That's an extreme to the right. To the left is being a coward. So when we look at this khasla from, uh, uh, from, uh, from Ali ibn Abi Talib, uh, we can see this as him having courage as, as a young man. For instance, when the Prophet وسلم, did the open call to Islam, and he invited Quraysh, and we know there was uh, a meal that was invited, that when people were invited to an Abu Jahl, uh, the enemy of God, uh, tried to sabotage the first one, there was another gathering with the meal, he called them to Islam. Um, no one accepted that message to follow the Prophet, except for Ali ibn Abi Talib, who was young at the time, who stood up and accepted with courage over his elders. His father didn't even accept, you know, uh, on that day. His uncles didn't accept that day. I mean, Hamza didn't accept that day, as great as Hamza was, right? And these other people that were there, his elders uh, didn't accept. That was courage. Uh, courage to lay in the bed for the Prophet وسلم, when the Prophet and Abu Bakr Siddiq made migration, right? Now today, much of our courage isn't about courage on the battlefield, but Ali was, he was a hero at Badr, and he was a hero at, 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 at uh, Khandaq, and he was a hero at Khaybar. We know he was a hero, right? But today the moral courage is, is to stand up for one's truth or stand up for the truth and stand for virtue in a time where that which is immoral is celebrated and those things are considered virtuous or considered to be backwards or demerits, right? So this is the much of the courage that, that, that we have to see embodied. At the same time, in the way of being courageous, of insulting other people in the name of standing up for one's virtues or one's beliefs, like to intentionally try to insult people, right? Uh, this, uh, or to be reckless and not calculating the, the consequences of what one said because there's a time and place for everything. This is actually reckless. So there, there, there is a fine line between some of these things about using caution out of wisdom and being a coward. One has to know oneself at the same time. One needs to know the right time to apply the hadith, like the Prophet وسلم, authority of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri in Sahih Muslim said, if any of you sees a munkar, means something that is immoral or unjust, you change it with your hand. If you, but if you can't, then resist it with your tongue. This is the time to speak out, right? There's wisdom in knowing and calculating and not being reckless in these two first endeavors of trying to change with one's hand if one is able or if one has the capacity to speak out. Now, I know we've, we've talked about this. We've slightly, we've touched on this, but what is the role of, of role models, of men in our lives uh, who exhibit not just these qualities, so the qualities you mentioned in your chapters of generosity, of med modesty, of courage, of sincere advice, of brotherhood, 
these are concepts, these are ideas uh, written in a book and, and one can digest these ideas, but one needs to see those people who not only embody these ideas, but embody these ideas correctly. As you mentioned previously, there are many today who, who when they talk about vigilant care, uh, they mean being overburdensome and being harsh towards women in their homes and to uh, to be like a policeman over over females. So in many ways, you need examples to exhibit uh, the the accuracy, the preciseness of these qualities. How important are these examples? And and why do we see, maybe that's an exaggeration to say there are very few examples. Of course, we have many examples of good Muslim men in, in, in our households and in our communities. But it's often the case that on social media, when you see a young man venting his frustrations and 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 talking about you know women in in a in a vulgar way or or describing uh, their manhood in a in a way which is uh, incorrect you do come to the conclusion that probably this person has not had that level of that model of manhood uh, to 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 show him even if sometimes this person has studied islam he yet hasn't got uh, that appreciation of Islamic manhood. So how important is modeling uh, these behaviors to young men? Well, the modeling and the embodiment is the most important. And this relates to the systematization or systematizing uh, of this endeavor. And there's a saying that uh, you, can't, you can't give to others what you don't have, right? So this isn't just simply uh, a didactical type of endeavor where someone just picks up a book on their own and reads some things and then think that they can go and teach it to others. And this is also part of the, the challenge and the need for tuadua or humility is that even those who are older who are involved in community work have to be honest with themselves and say, well, you know, perhaps I need some brushing up or perhaps when I was raised, there was certain things that I didn't fully get that I need to work on myself so that I can transmit these things to my sons or to the young people in the community, right? And this is why humility and actually uh, honesty is very important because it's, it's, I was told by one of my teachers that it's bad when someone lies to you but the worst lie is when, when a person lies to themselves, right? That, that's the worst form of deception, deception is, is, is self-deception. So if we look at the Quran, for instance, another example, when Musa السلام, was a young man, the Quran mentions a Sotul Kaf, that he had a spiritual mentor. We know him as Al-Khadr His name is not mentioned in the Quran, but we have it in the, in the, in the Tafasir and Ahadith, we have his name. He's, his name is Mahruf, is, 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 is quite well known. One of the most steadfast messengers of God, before he went to Fir'aun, to challenge Fir'aun, went through some spiritual mentorship before he went and spoke to Fir'aun and then lead his people. So since a messenger of God who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected from the intention to sin, who protected him from the intention to sin, who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a book to, went through 
mentorship and had to see some embodiment, then we as men, we'd have to be delusional to think that if we haven't gone through certain rites of passage ourselves or certain like education that we don't need it and we can just go and just talk about what manhood is or think that we're going to raise up uh, uh, these these young boys to be you know quality Muslim men and this is and this is something that's spiritual and again aqidah is important right fiqh is important but this isn't the totality of Islam right uh, you know the, the the sciences of the heart and the ethics of Islam right uh, what was our, our akhlaq we call akhlaqiyat right that is something that just can't merely be intellectualized by picking up uh, a book by Imam Tahawi or picking up a book of uh, of 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 Imam Muhammad Shibani for Hanafi fiqh or whatever it doesn't work that way how important is it for young men to study uh, the battles of the prophet alayhi salatu wasalam i remember reading uh, Ibn Kathir's um, books of the book about the battle of the Prophet ﷺ. And in it, he, got, he had a quote from Ali bin Abi Talib who said that uh, they used to teach the battles, the ghazwa of the Prophet ﷺ on the same level as the ayat of Quran. I feel that in a post 9 11 world, it's very difficult sometimes for, especially in the West, for Muslims, for Imams, for Islamic teachers to emphasize the battles, yet the battles seem to bring out the, the, the preciseness of these qualities come through when they're up against the, the heat of the battle. Um, is there a need to reinstate or to, to, uh, to bring back, if, 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 if it's missing in some quarters, to bring back uh, the uh, prophetic battles in the Muslim community? Yeah, so what you're saying about the saying of, of, of Ali bin Talib, uh, is is a true statement, and even in some of the early books, Kitab al-Maghazi, uh, you know, but al-Waqidi, this is one of the earliest books that we have on Syria on Syria, but it's really a book about the battles. And obviously, he's a controversial figure. Some of the Hadith scholars have a have a bad opinion about him. Well, not bad opinion; they 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 criticized him. Uh, but nonetheless, this is something very important. I don't think it was lost in all circles of our communities in the West, but where it's been lost or never taught, it definitely needs to be revived. Uh, I know in our area, we specifically take time every year to go through Badr and also go through Uhud. So Badr is in Ramadan. Ramadan is an important time to learn. Uh, and then also Uhud happened in Shawal. So it happened the month after uh, Badr. And, and there's a lot to learn in these two battles in particular. These are the first two major battles, but we can see uh, the Sahaba in victory against great odds. We could also see the Sahaba at, when there was a setback and what happened with that setback, right? And there's a lot to be gleaned from this, from you know uh, how we treat people when they revile us or mock us, like when Suhail bin Amr was taken as a prisoner of war in Badr, for instance. Uh, the discipline that's needed where if one abandons their posts and doesn't hold on to their trust, the consequences that could take place, like what happened at Ohud. Uh, so there's a lot of things that can be learned uh, from these in these battles. But um, here in my area, my locality, 
we never gave up talking about those uh, Rezawat, uh just because of 9-11. We, we kept the tradition up, especially uh, talking about Badr and Uhud, but uh, there's also lessons to be learned from Khandaq in particular. I, I, I talk about Khandaq quite often, uh, as well as what led to the Ghazwa uh, uh, against Bani Kainuka, right? In this place to Ghera, where it started off with one Muslim woman in the Sukh getting her hijab ripped off and her clothing, clothing torn. That one Muslim man, we don't even know his name in, in the books of Sirah, who stepped up to defend the honor of that Muslim woman and became a shaheed. And that literally, uh, Ghazwa started after one Muslim woman being molested, which led to one, one Sahabi being killed, right? There's a lot to learn from that too. So th th there's many lessons to learn from these, uh, from these uh, expeditions and campaigns. There is a danger when studying these characteristics that uh, we aim for perfection or aim for these mono-personalities where everyone uh, either tries to seek these qualities to a, to a degree which becomes almost impossible or failing that, um, the, the individual personalities of Muslims are lost because uh, they're all, they've, they've acquired a, a set syllabus. I mean, looking at the Sahaba, Ridwan al-Aili, we find that they were personalities in their own right. They, they all had these qualities. Some had them more than others, I suspect. Well, certainly so. But uh, they were very individual personalities, and they had qualities uh, that uh, marked them as individuals. How important is it in our development of young men to be responsive uh, to uh, these individual qualities that they may uh, they may naturally have, uh, and in the process of teaching them altruism and modesty and generosity, we sort of hammer these concepts out of them, uh, or these these personalities out of them until uh, they look and feel like everyone else. Okay, so the goal is that we strive as a lifelong journey to to exhibit as much as we can all of makarumu akhlaq right, all the noble traits of character, and because this is the Prophet himself, وسلم, he said that I was sent but to perfect makarbu akhlaq, right, so this is the goal, and obviously none of us will reach his uh, maqam, but it's a lifelong journey. It is true that Allah gave all of us certain strengths and weaknesses, and this is, and, and this is why, number one, we need teachers or mentors who see certain things in us to help us in our growth and also to temper certain things as the prophet was with Umar ibn Khattab when when Umar I mean Umar was shadid and he had to work on that at the same time we also have to do our own inner work or introspection which relates to the saying of Ali right whoever knows himself knows his lord meaning that our lord is our creator we are creation he is perfect, we are, are imperfect, right? Uh, he is everlasting, we will have an ending, right? So this requires muhasaba, uh, self-reflection, self-inventory, that we look at our weaknesses and we seek to try to put more effort and work on those weaknesses um, and not just only lean into our strengths. 
and this is even from an organizational level, like I've done trainings in nonprofit management, where you do something called a SWOT analysis, right? You look at your strengths and your weaknesses, uh, and then as well as you look at your, your opportunities and your threats, those are outward things, but you have you look at your own internal strengths and weaknesses from an organizational perspective. We have to also look at our own individual strengths and, and weaknesses. And this is part of our life, lifelong journey in following uh, the beloved of God, Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa alayhi wa sahbihi. Jazakallah khair for your time today. It's, a, it's been a fascinating discussion and a timely book, I think. This book will be well received in the Muslim community, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, are you planning to give lectures based on the chapters or courses based on the chapters of this book, uh, whether that's online or in, in person? So we did a class the launching of the book at Imam Ghazali Institute, and I believe you still can sign up and look at those classes. Uh, it was uh, several sessions going through the book, uh, Imam Ghazali Institute. Uh, I've been traveling around um, North America, uh, giving um, lectures and classes on this, uh, going to several uh, states uh, and also in Canada, online and also in person. And uh, I hope uh, with the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I'm able to make it back to the UK. I was in the UK in December uh, of, of uh, 2021. And right as the book launched, we did a class in High Wickham at the uh, at, at Crema Foundation with Molana Awesome. So we hope to come back to um, to uh, to the UK to London, uh, hopefully. Oh, we also did we also did one in Bradford as well. So we hope to come back inshallah to do something. I hope in 2023 and in uh, London as well as in uh, Manchester, inshallah. Uh, that's our. Hope we're, it's our hope that we're able to do that. Yes, I know Molana Asim, and uh, I think he will agree with me. High Wycombe is is off the beaten path when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to England. It's a small country, but it's still, uh, yeah, yeah. The big cities would be great. And and where can some where can uh, my listeners find out about future events? I have a I got off of uh, social media, which I call anti social media. Is <laughs> 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 so I've been off there for about two years, but I have a. Uh, a telegram group so you can go to your phone and follow me on uh, on telegram and then also normally uh imam ghazali institute will post on their facebook page uh when i'm going to give a um, um a class my next one will be in uh, south florida and then i will have one uh coming up the following month in atlanta at uh sheikh uh, aninawi's um, organization at the Medina Institute. So right. we're taking it to uh, to different places, inshallah, inshallah. Uh, talking with the uh, talking with parents and also talking specifically just with the young males yes. uh, away yes. from the uh, away from the the women folk. That's uh, that's brilliant. Jazakallah uh, khair. Thank you for your time today. Right.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.